I'll have to wear, uh, no, I'm not going to wear high heels next week. That would be weird. Um, uh, my name's John Roberts. Um, I am a teacher at Portland Christian High School. Um, and so I'm feeling very much like I'm breaking dress code right now. Um, I actually texted Dave earlier and I said, is it all right if I wear shorts? Because uh, as a teacher, um, you know, we only work nine months out of the year, so people think we don't work very much. Um, but my room that I work in is uh, also a sauna. Um, it uh, faces uh, south, and so it gets sun all year round. And uh, on average, it's somewhere between 80 and about 105 degrees. And so um, wearing long pants every single day when my kids are wearing shorts and the girls are wearing skirts is very much torture. So I very much appreciate you not making me wear the suit and tie you told me to wear originally. So since he doesn't, I don't think I have to worry about it. Okay, before we get going... Um, there are no packets. I see some of you guys have grabbed them. They are on the back back there. Can I get one of you interns to go run back and grab some or young men or something? Um, there's also these little note cards, little tracks. These are not mine. I bought these, and you can have them. Um, it says uh, priestatgodexists.org, and on the back it has a really quick summary of the method that I'm going to be teaching you guys of apologetics. Um, and this is not some new method. This has been around since the Apostle Paul. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's nothing new, but it is probably a way that you haven't ever seen it before. So the website on there is a guy named Cy Ten Bruggenkate. So you say his name fast, his name's Satan. Right? Satan Bruggenkate. So he's a Christian, praise the Lord. And uh, he uh, has a website that has a really fun little interactive thing where it's like, if you believe this, click this button. If you believe that, click that button. And it's kind of a fun way to kind of flesh out this, uh, this apologetic that I'm going to be teaching. So there's a bunch of those back there if we run out. I will have more. Um, so that, this is what the note sheet looks like right here. Okay? And then right here, this is your homework. Okay? Uh, I've been out of school for a couple months, and I've been jonesing to give some people some homework. So... There you go. So that's for you to read after. Um, we will not have class. We will not have a lesson next week, but we will have another one in two weeks. Okay? So um, there is church next week, and we're doing prayer and worship, right? Awesome. Um, so that will be in two weeks, and I'll walk you through what that's going to be like. So a little bit about me. I, am, um, I was born at a very young age, um, and uh, I am... That's about the... That's it. So you guys, that's all the laughter you're going to get from me. So sorry. Um, I am a uh, high school teacher by profession. Uh, I have worked little bits of odds and ends, jobs, anything from an OR anesthesia tech to a file clerk at a high-risk pregnancy office to UPS to Chick-fil-A before it was cool right here, back when it was at the mall, um, and then closed down. Um, and now I'm a teacher, and then I'm also a football coach, and this last year I had the, uh, the privilege of being the campus pastor at Portland Christian High School as well, and that's where I work. Um, and I've worked there now going on 13 years. So I've got three wonderful kids. They're all gorgeous. They look like their mom. Um, and they're in there raising, uh, hopefully not hell, raising heaven, maybe. I don't know. They're doing something in there right now, hopefully not killing anybody. Um, so one last little fun fact about me. Um, Matt and I were geeking out about this a little bit before uh, church. I love this room. Um, and it's not because I'm a basketball-playing guy or volleyball-playing guy or football-playing guy. It's the flags. How awesome are these flags? I'm kind of a flagophile, right? So if you've ever seen Big Bang Theory, anybody seen that show? Okay, I'm not recommending that show. I'm not from the pulpit saying it's great. But in that show, the main character, Sheldon, has a podcast called The, the Fun with Flags. And I remember seeing it and going, 
is there really a podcast like that? Because I love flags, and I love knowing where they came from and the history of them. And so Matt and I were nerding out before, before church talking about which flag was which. And so there you go. There's a fun fact about me. See, I told you it wasn't going to be funny, right? So, so let's talk about apologetics. So um, I have a nice little clicker here. I hope it'll work. It looks like we're going good. Let's see. Hey, there you go. So we're talking about apologetics. The word apologetics comes from a Greek word that looks exactly the same as the word apologetics. It's called a transliterated Greek word. In the Bible, sometimes, for whatever reason, we get transliterated words. The word baptism is one of those words. Baptism comes from the Greek word baptismo, which means to immerse. Wouldn't they have been nice if they just could have translated that that way at the beginning instead of saying baptism, and there would be all this sprinkle versus dunk and things like that. Well, the word apologetics, apologia, or apologia, they translated into um, the words defense or verbal defense. I also thought it was really funny. You guys all sat over here, and my notes are going to be all over there. So I thought that was kind of next time you guys can switch if you'd like. The fans over here, I know why you guys sat there. So apologia. So we're going to talk about defending the faith. All right. We're going to talk about what it means to defend the faith. This word, like I said, is used eight times in the Bible. It's the word that's used for when Paul has to speak before the different Roman um, rulers. He says, I'm going to give you an apologia. Okay. Now, before we go any farther, I see a lot of you guys writing. If you're listening to too much writing and you just want to listen, uh, Pastor Dave told me, I think we're recording this, right? And I also have all of my notes with extras and things like that. And if you just want to just sit back and listen, you can do that. I do love taking notes. I'm not going to be giving any extra points for it, so um, you can't get any graduate credit or anything like that. Um, so, and I don't think I have any of you in my classes, so I can't even, even offer that. So the um, definition for apologetics, the one that we're going to go with, uh, is not up here yet, but these are three that I found. The first one is application of biblical truth to unbelief. Okay, that's not too bad, right? You can write that one down if you want, if that one kind of floats your boat. The second one was by this really brilliant scholar that um, I, I haven't really started reading him yet. His name's Cornelius Van Til, but he's the guy that kind of really popularized, repopularized this apologetic method. Um, and he says that it's the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of non-Christian philosophy of life. Very wordy scholar. Maybe you like that one. You're thinking, yes, right? Or you can go with the last one, which I kind of think is fun. It's not the one we're going to use, but it's also nice. The science Okay? and the art of defending Scripture. Now, whenever I talk about defending Scripture, there's always people that will say, wait a second, this is God we're talking about. Do we really need to be defending God? I mean, can't He fight His own battles? I mean, He's big, right? I mean, you know, what, does He really need us to defend His Scripture? And the answer is yes, but not in the way that it's like, without us, Scripture will die. It's without us, some people won't ever be able to understand Scripture. They won't be able to clearly see it. And our apologetics, first and foremost, is our life. Our life is what teaches people about Jesus. And we're going to see that here in a minute. But then the words that follow the life, the words that follow what we do, are the next step. And that's the part we're talking about. Hence the word verbal and the word defense for apologia. So it's how do we verbally defend. Now, this does not mean it's only communicating, you know, verbally. You know, this can be texting. This can be, you know, uh, tweeting. This can be Facebook. I have a uh, past student of mine who kind of deems himself a little Facebook apologist. And he has a bunch of things he posts. And when people comment, he gets these 
private conversations where they direct message back and forth and witnesses to it. Maybe that's the new mission field uh, on our planet with the social media craze. But the big thing is, is it's our job to help with the understanding, making sure they understand it. So let's talk about what the purposes of this course. This is it. Firm up your understanding of what you believe and show that the Christian worldview is the only valid worldview. Okay? Now, if you haven't heard this concept of worldview before, that's fine. This is something that really gets brought up a lot in Christian education, whether it be higher education or your primary schooling. It's about how we see the world. And everybody in this room has a worldview. The question is, is, is it based on Scripture or is it based on something else? So the worldview is key. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to be arguing and I'm going to lay out for you, before we start talking about evidences for this or evidences for that, we got to get the foundation in the right place. And once that foundation is in the right place, then we can build upon that foundation. And I think Pastor Dave, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to you know, necessarily charge him with plagiarism, um, but I'm going to. Um, you know, I gave him my notes a couple days ago, and I saw like two or three of my things that I was talking about tonight in, the no in his sermon today. So um, I don't know, but anyway, God is good. Maybe he just gave you that before me, but either way, um, you guys can, you know what, maybe I'm just, you know, I, I just copied from him. That's just whenever I say something good, I'm copying from him, okay? So um, uh, let's talk about the, uh, so more about the purpose of this course. Um, and if you want to turn to 1 Peter, you can. Um, I always tell my students, only turn there if you have a real book, not the smartphones, but I'll trust you guys. You can go there if you want. Um, so our understanding of worldview, this idea, you know, I'm going to make a big claim here. But the claim is that this course will give you what you need to have to be able to prove God exists. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, no doubt left over. Okay? Because ultimately, when we can get to the heart of worldview of every single person we encounter, we can get to the heart that belongs to Christ, that God made, and we can get right to that. All right? So there's a lot we can do with that. Christianity is rational, reasonable. It is the only livable worldview. But here's the thing, and I'm going to harp on this over and over again. Apologetics, this defense of the faith, is good, but it's worthless. Well, that's kind of a contradiction. Yes, it's on purpose. It's good, but it's worthless if it doesn't lead to the next step, which is evangelism. Okay? I, I talked to Matt. We, we went back and forth about what to call this, and I said, hey, I kind of like the Apollo evangelism thing. But that was like, that's a new word that I made up. Pastor Dave, I can't do that yet. Um, you know, but Apollo evangelism, right? Because ultimately it does no good if I come up here and I hit John over the head with Christian worldview, Christian worldview, and I show there is a God. And he goes, oh, I believe there's a God. And I go, all right, see you later. Bye-bye. Because that doesn't save, right? It doesn't save if John believes that there is a Jesus. It doesn't save that, they believe, that he believes even Christian doctrine. He's got to have that relationship. Now, I'm not saying that's our job because faith comes from the Lord. It's a free gift of God. But it's our job to be a ready defense to not only proclaim where Christianity is, but take them to the cross. So this is an evangelism thing. So who are we going to be talking about? Who are we evangelizing with this course? All right, here's my list. Ready? Lukewarm Christians, cultural Christians, liberal Christians, moderate Christians, conservative Christians. And those are just the Christians. Okay? Then we've got Muslims, Mormons, we've got Jews, we've got uh, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, Shintoists, 
I've got to watch saying that word sometimes, especially in my classes. They think I say, I swear. Um, you got to do uh, Rastafarians, Pasifarians, all of it. Seahawk fans, right? Okay. All right. So the thing about it is, is that's a huge list, but it's all obtainable. Every single one of them. Now, most of the time when people approach apologetics, they approach it with, here, here's a book on this theory, and a book on this theory, and a book on that theory, and you've got to dig through all these different books and memorize, memorize, memorize. No, no, that's not what you've got to do. That's why those books are there, right? What you've got to do is you've got to know what you believe. You've got to know your faith. And then when someone comes along who goes, I'm a Mormon, I'd like to know more about your faith. Okay, here's my faith. I want to know about your faith. I can get you a book. I can pull out a book. I can talk to an ex-Mormon. I can, you know, there's all sorts of research. We got to get to where we understand what we believe and why we believe it better than anything else. Okay? So that's where we're going. We want to take them to the point where they submit to the God of the universe. Okay? 100% biblical. This apologetic started in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. So what's, what's the background here? Come on. I need something, Moses. Which God are we talking about? No, in the beginning, God. No equivocation, no explanation. Beginning, God. Boom. Start the story. It's there. And that's what we have to do when we have our apologetics. And I'll show you how we do that. We are going to be exposed to other forms of apologetics. Um, I'm going to do my best to lay them out fairly. There's three main strands. Uh, evidentialism, classical, and presupposition. Now, I'm going to be teaching from a presuppositional uh, understanding. The other two are great. I just don't think they're as biblical, nor do I think they get to the root of the issue. All right? So please don't hear me say when we talk about some of these individuals that they're the enemy. They're not. We're all on the same team. We're going to be partying in heaven forever. Okay? They just approach it in a way that I don't think necessarily works. But what they've done is great once you do what we're going to be doing. Once we get at the heart, the foundation, then we can plug in all the other apologetics. But that first foundation is key. All right, let me make sure I've got all my things. This is not a simple five-step plan. You memorize five things and, boom, people are going to become Christians. This is a more lifetime package. Now, you may be saying, wait a second, I don't know if I want to be out evangelizing. Uh, what does this mean? This just helps you understand the way the world thinks. All right? When we become believers, we're called new creations. And some of us have been a new creation for a lot longer than we were an old creation. Some of us are new creations very recently. But even then, there's still this, why do they think that way? Why, I, I don't quite remember. I don't quite understand. Why is it that people of a different worldview think that way? Well, we're going to address that. Because when we understand our worldview, it makes sense of all the others. So, let's see. First Peter, that's where we're going. That's a little out of order. I think we jumped ahead. Technology. Let me get back to where we were. Um... Come on. Talk amongst yourselves. All right. Well, we'll go back to there. So, layout for the course tonight. We're talking world, uh, apologetics. Two weeks, we're going to talk about worldview and actually hit that and get it pretty good. Um, then we're going to do logical fallacies. And then the final one is going to be putting it all together, where we're going to kind of role play through um, a couple different things as we go through. So, that's the main, main thing. So, now you're thinking, wait, I, got, I won't be here this week or I won't be here that this week, other week. At the end of each time, we're going to review. At the beginning of each time, we're going to review. We didn't have anything to review today because we haven't had a class. We're going to review each time. So at the end of today, I'm going to roll out the entire apologetic method. 
It's at the very back of your notes. I've got a nice little kind of layout there by Greg Bonson, a very brilliant guy who taught this method. Uh, I've read several books by him, been listening to him like crazy, getting ready for this. His method is there. So if you can't make it to any other ones or you don't have time to get to it, it's there. But we're going to continue to build upon it. So I'm going to make some assumptions today that I'm going to back up with my next two lessons. Okay? So if you're like, wait a second, that didn't make any sense. Just wait. You can still ask me after and I'll, I'll, we can sit and talk and dialogue through it. But there's, there's foundations that we're going to be building off of as we go. Okay? So, 1 Peter. There we go. Now we're back to where we want to be. 1 Peter 3. 15. Here is what it says. And this is the charter verse of all apologetics. This is actually where um, we get, this is where we get it, right? This is where we get the word apologetics. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason, that's the word apologia, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Pretty straightforward, right? But at the same time, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying, isn't it? We are to answer who? What does it say? An answer to anyone? Okay. Eh, better translation, everyone. So you're saying that every time someone comes up, I have to have an answer to them? Holy smokes, I remember that list we just did a second ago. You only got four weeks with me. Well, that's not enough. Well, it is actually. Because, again, remember, we're going to argue from our foundation to that expose the weakness of their foundation. Because there is only one foundation, and it is Christ. Now, we have to read context. I have a book that my, I make my students read. It's called Never Read a Bible Verse. They're going, yes, no homework. No, actually what the, 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 the article is about is you never want to read a Bible verse by itself. Okay. What is that old phrase? Reading a Bible verse out of context is the pretext to a proof text. That's a lot of... Basically what it means is you can pull anything out of context and make it say whatever you want. Alright? Kind of in light of what Pastor Dave was talking about. I can pull a verse out of context. Boys, I don't recommend this, especially if you're single, because it'll stay that way. Don't pull the verse out of context in Timothy that says, Women shall learn in quiet and submission. Because when you pull it out of context, when you pull it out of... I can give you a reference later if you guys want that. Um, if you pull it out of context, it doesn't mean what it means. And it's really funny when you're in junior high and the girls are mouthing and you're like, the Bible says you got to shut up, right? It doesn't work so well when you actually want to get to what the Bible says. So what is the context of 1 Peter? Well, first thing we start with as a good Bible teacher is we start with who wrote it. Now, this is not a trick question. Who wrote 1 Peter? Yes, okay, you got that one right. Good job. I couldn't pause any longer there to make you guys sweat. What, what is Peter known for? Denying the Lord. What else? From what? Talking. Yeah, he was kind of the spokesperson of all the apostles. Doing the wrong thing. Yes. He was just like us, though. Really close to Jesus. Probably Jesus' right hand. Now, how many of you guys have ever seen the old show? My sister has every single season of it. Little House on the Prairie. Raise your hand. Be, be, be out there. Remember the main character, Michael Landon, right? You guys know he was a world, no, he was a U.S. champion javelin thrower. Phenomenal guy. Yeah, awesome guy. But... Remember the guy that was his best friend, the big, full beard, kind of always wearing flannel, his, you know, kind of heavier guy? What's his name? Isaiah. That's right. My mom knew because she's watched all those too. That's how I envisioned Peter, right? So let's go to his denying of Christ. Let's review a little bit. So Peter is there, right? Pulls out his sword, cuts off the guy's ear. How do you, what was he aiming for, right? Cuts off the guy's ear, okay? 
Jesus heals it, which right there should have stopped the conversation, but it didn't. Heals him. They take Jesus on. Peter kind of follows from far away. Now, it says that Peter and Jesus are within eyesight or something along those lines. Because at the very end, it says Jesus looks at him. We'll talk about that in a second. But do you remember who it is that calls Peter out first? A little girl, right? Now, the word in the Greek means a prepubescent girl. So you're thinking, big, manly man, Peter, and this little girl goes, you know, you kind of have a funny accent. You're from Galilee. You're that guy's follower. And Peter goes, no, 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 don't hurt me. Stop. Does that, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking Peter's going to go up against the guy with the neck that's the size of a tree. You know, the centurion, he's like, you know, that's not it, though. Peter's denying himself before a little girl. And then he denies himself before the little girl and a couple of her friends. And then it's some other people. And then he runs away after Jesus turns and looks at him. Talk about right to the heart, right? And this is the guy who wrote 1 Peter. Well, the good news is with Peter's story, just like ours, amen, it doesn't stop there, right? A few weeks later, Peter, in the book of Acts, is before the Sanhedrin. He is standing in the place where Jesus would have been hit, would have been whipped. Now, this is all before we went to Pontius Pilate, because the Sanhedrin was softening him up a little bit. He's standing in the spot where Jesus had stood and maybe even looked at him. I'm wondering if Peter, as he's standing there in the Sanhedrin, is, is asking, why are you still talking about Jesus? If he looks down and sees, you know, there's a little bit of blood there still. Or does he think, wow, that's where Jesus' head hit the ground. Or over here is where I saw him lay down and curled up when they were beating him and kicking him and pulling out his beard. I mean, and what does Peter do? Does he cower? He stands up and he says, you guys did this. It's your fault. What are you going to do about it? Because what's the worst that can happen to Peter at this point? Kill him, right? And he gets to go be with Jesus. Come on, bring it. Because you know what? Peter knows what persecution is. First Peter is all about persecution. The entire book. And I'm not talking about persecution like what we have today in America. Now, what we have today in America and what's coming is going to be, it's going to be not fun. But persecution is what the rest of the world and the rest of Christian history has experienced. Christianity, a majority of the time, has not been the top dog. Okay, you can see this with the apostles. How many of the apostles were not martyred? One. And not for lack of trying. Okay? They dipped him in boiling oil and it burned his entire body and he lived. Yes, all the sensitive areas were burned. Okay? He was just, I mean, can you imagine what that would look like? Right? Having his skin all, okay. Look, so this is the persecution that Peter is experiencing. So we want to read Peter in its context. So ultimately what Peter is talking about is it's our righteousness will make us strangers and aliens. It will bring about suffering. But it comes from our devotion to Christ. And ultimately, um, ultimately we have to give an explanation for that. So we've got to read 1 Peter 3, 8 through 18 um, in the right way. Okay, we've got to understand what's, what's being written here. So here we go. I'm going to read it to you. We're going to read verses 8. I left my Bible at home, so I'm going to start with my phone. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you. Okay? That's Greek for all y'all. Finally, all y'all have 
unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for it is this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That's the preceding sentence before the verse we're looking at. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, talk about long run-on sentence. They would have lost some points right there. But seriously, this is a big deal. We are called sojourners and exiles, okay? The, the, the whole point behind this, first off, is Peter is saying, everyone, everyone in the church, okay? Everyone, all, every single one. That means every single one of us is called to do what Peter is laying out here. So that's the first part of the context, and that's verse 8. For all of you, okay? And then he says, if, and by the way, when he says all of you, he doesn't mean all of you that want to be the Navy SEAL apologist, right? We kind of view sometimes apologetics and some of the Bible scholarship as something that is just for those people that want PhDs or, you know, they're going to go be pastors. Or, no, it's for all of us. We should be scholars of God's Word first and foremost. Otherwise, what is the point? Okay? So we got that. Then it says unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and so on. This is not about winning debates. It's about loving on people and showing them the Lord, taking them to the Lord. What use is it to show a man um, that Jesus is God but not introduce him to Jesus? Right? What's the point? Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless, for that is what you are called to do. Then you will obtain a blessing. Okay? This apologetic method is not a get-everybody-to-like-you method. It's not a get-everybody-to-love-you method. This is a honor the Lord like he has asked us to do and show them the truth. And what did they do to the one who was the truth? They killed him. So is it any surprise that they don't like us? No. But in the face of that dislike, in the face of that hatred, in the face of that utter disgust, we are courageous because we are doing it unto the Lord. Because what's the worst they can do? Oh, send us to be with Jesus. Yes, please. Right? Worst they can do is kill you. Everything else, you know, it's a piece of cake. Jesus is going to let us know what to say in that moment. And when that moment comes, we have a ready defense. How did Christianity conquer the world? Through dying. They didn't conquer the world through conquering. That was Islam. That's what Islam did in the Middle East. They conquered through the sword. Christianity conquered through the cross. They conquered through the crazy ways that Nero decided to kill Christians, dipping them in oil and lighting them on fire, through lions tearing them to shreds, to being drawn and quartered, to being all the nasty ways that they did it. Christianity did it because we didn't retaliate. We acted like our Savior. And they went, how on earth are these people still doing this? They know if they meet and they get together and they read their Bibles, we're going to kill them. 
something weird. We've got to ask these people what's going on. That's the ready defense. That's when we have that defense. John 15:18 says, If the world hates you, know that they hated me before it. That's Jesus talking. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Okay? Not some, but all. All. Romans 12.14 Bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. So, a little explanation of what we see here. The ultimate point we got. My daughter chose that slide color because she liked pink. She cried when I wouldn't let her have all of them pink. So there's the explanation. First and foremost, we must know what we believe. Okay? doesn't do us any good to know all the other worldviews out there, but then someone comes along and goes, oh, this Trinity thing. Trinity? Isn't that Amanda's daughter? What? I don't know. What's this Trinity? Is that a doctrine? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, something about Jesus. And I don't and, you know. we got to know our stuff. Okay? So, look what it says. It says, the hope that is where? It is in us. In us. So the hope's got to be in us first and foremost. We've got to express it. Second, we must know why we believe. It says the reason, the ground, the, the, the facts behind the hope. What is the reason behind the hope? And then last, we must be willing and able to explain the belief to others in a winsome manner. Now, if you're not reading a lot of Jane Austen, you might not know what winsome means. Winsome means attractive or appealing in character. Okay? It means it looks appealing. Now, you're going, wait a second. You're just talking about people getting killed and murdered and all these nasty ways of killing people. There's nothing attractive about that. Yes, but that's where you're wrong. See, if I'm being tortured and I'm feeling the worst pain imaginable, and yet I'm joyful, the mind of the person torturing me or the mind of the people watching me being tortured goes, that's the worst thing I can imagine anyone ever doing, and that guy's got more joy than me, and I'm over here, and I'm not even, I don't even have any hangnails. What happens when some pain comes along? I'm, I want that. See, that's what happened was these Christians are being killed, and they're singing. They're praising the Lord. There were so many of them. I remember there was a story about one when, because it was the irony of them being baptized, they were, they were tying rocks to them and throwing them into the water. And they were doing it to try to get, the, the mom was out in the water to be thrown in, and the kids were over here. And the kids were yelling to the mom, Mom, stay strong, don't recant. And the mom's going, I'm not going to recant, neither will you. Watch your mom be murdered or your kids be murdered and still be joyful. Because you know what? They can touch me all they want. They touch my kids. Oh, man. That, that's not okay. All right? That, 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 pet, that scares me. Anybody seen the movie No Escape? I made the mistake of watching that last night. Uh, it's about, it's, uh, it's about a, two people that are in an Asian country um, with their two kids, and the country gets overthrown the night they arrive. Bummer. Right? And they're killing all the Americans. And so he's got his little, you know, six-year-old and four-year-old girl and his wife, and he's trying to navigate this city where everybody's out to kill him. And at one point, he has to take his four-year-old daughter and throw her from one building to the other because they're going to kill her. And so he had to actually throw her across, and then there are people trying to kill him, and it's, it's just crazy. And I'm just going, man, don't you touch my kids, because that's where I'm going to lose it. But look at what they didn't do. The Christians did not lose it. They said, stay strong. 
Don't give up your faith, son. Don't give up your faith, daughter. That kills. But that's the faith that we're called to have. And that's the, that's the part that they just don't understand. That's what makes it attractive. And praise the Lord. You know what? We need to thank the Lord every day that we have not had to experience that. Amen? I mean, here in America, we have not had to experience that. There have been bits and pieces, and we see stuff coming, but man, what's going on over in Syria? What's going on over in Iran and other places? India. I mean, there's some crazy, crazy stuff going on. So, all right. Then we move on, and we see the next part, which says gentleness and respect. Okay? So I'll get those up there so you can write those down, and then I'll talk about them. Oh, I'm just kidding. There we go. There's a little bit of a lag when I click it, and I get impatient. You know, it's like, come on. And you turn it off, on, off, on, off, on. Gentleness. Okay, now this does not mean lack of respect or a lack of strength. Okay? This is me wrestling with that little guy, the little two-year-old who's standing in the corner trying to distract me over there. It's me wrestling with Lincoln. I mean, I can take him. Oh, take that. Boom, right? I mean, I, I could seriously hurt the guy, right? Even though he is pretty tough, and he's in the 99 percentile for weight. The guy is, the guy is a middle linebacker for two-year-olds, right? But to be honest, I have to be gentle with him. Does that mean I give up my strength? No, it's still there. But it means strength for the moment. So when it talks about gentleness, when we have this gentleness with people, we have to apply the, the, the strength necessarily with wisdom. And that's what we're going to try to do as we do this apologetics. And then when we see respect. Now this respect does not mean we respect the person, but it means respect the one who is behind it all. This is the Lord we're talking about. Because the word actually is fear. Okay? Now, I know if you've ever done any sort of evangelism, there is a bit of this shaking and kind of fear, but that's not what this is talking about. This is a word that is usually used for fear of the Lord. So it's respect for the fact that we know God is behind us all. God is the one who's telling us to do this, and He's the ultimate audience we're trying to please in everything we do. Okay? So then uh, I got a nice little quote here from Vody Bauckham, who uh, I love this quote. Apologetics is ultimately an expression of our willingness to suffer rather than compromise. It is the explanation of our suffering, both in terms of why we suffer and how we suffer. Apologetics says to a watching world, we have been captured by something so profound that we are willing not only to be fooled, that's what we have here in America, we're called idiots, right? But to suffer as such. Suffer as fools. You guys understand that there is going to be a time... Maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe it's our kids, maybe it is in our lifetimes, when people will be thinking that putting us to death or putting us in prison is the just and humane thing to do. Like they're rounding up the Nazis, like they're rounding up the KKK, like they're rounding up fill in the blank. They're going to think that that's the right thing. They already are in other places in the world. That is what we have coming. And we have to be willing to say, I stand with Jesus. All right? What is, that, what is that verse? If he denies me before man, well, I will deny him before the Lord. Scary. So, we get back to our first Peter 3.15. Always being prepared. So here's our definition of apologetics. Okay? Apologetics is about knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate it to others in a clear, cogent, winsome manner. Clear, cogent, winsome manner. So first of all, we need to know what we believe, right? Someone comes up and says, well, Christians believe this. No, I don't believe that. Well, what do you say? I don't have to defend it. I don't believe that, right? We defend what we know. 
We believe it, we know why we believe it, and then we are ready to answer. And the ways we answer, we do it in three ways. Clear, cogent, and winsome. Okay? The definition of cogent is clear and easy for a mind to accept. Okay? It comes from the word, we have the word cogitate, which means to think. That's kind of the same root there. It just means to be able to get our minds wrapped around it. So when we talk about God, we've got to explain it in a way that people can understand. And that doesn't mean we do flannel graphs and we do, you know, break it down into whatever. But it means we keep going until they get it, right? We keep going until they can explain it back to you. Because ultimately, if they can't explain it, they don't get it. And as a teacher, that's what I, I have to have. I have to have my students be able to explain it, teach it back to me. If they don't do that, they don't get it. Winsome, cheerful, appealing, pleasant. So how do we do this? How do we do apologetics? Well, there are three main types, okay? Um, now, what is the best? Now, best, there's a couple ways we could define this word. Is best most people following it? Is best the one that makes the world like us the most? Or is best the biblical model? Well, obviously, it's going to be the biblical model, right? But I'm going to argue that sometimes we sacrifice the Bible a little bit to try to win the person. And there's an inherent problem in that. When we sacrifice God's Word, our support for everything, to win a person to accept God's Word, we've just kind of cut our legs out from underneath them. And that's what we, we do on a regular basis. So, three models. The three models are, first and foremost, classical. So you got a nice little chart there. Reason undergirds faith. So how do we know, wh wh where does faith come from? It comes from our brains. It comes from making sense of stuff. Okay? There are, there's, you can see some different things there. Defend the, Christ, the, the Christian faith by appealing to the unbeliever's brain. Okay? Logical arguments. Okay? Things like the teleological argument. That's also known as intelligent design. The cosmological argument, that's like the Big Bang or the cosmolog uh, the Kalam argument. Before there was a beginning, something had to begin the beginning, okay, things like that. Ontological arguments and things like that. The point of the classical one is you kind of lay out all this evidence, and then you go, see, here's our evidence, or here's our arguments, and then here's the other arguments. Which one looks better? Okay? That's the classical method. These are people like Plato who wasn't a believer, but he did argue for a higher power, Thomas Aquinas, R.C. Sproul, William Lane Craig. That's the first group. That's not what we're going to be teaching here, okay? They do have value. We do have those arguments that we can pull out. I would recommend these guys' ministries, not Plato's, but the other ones, okay? Um, I would recommend them as places to go if you have questions. But I don't think we can start with the questions if the foundation hasn't been addressed, all right? So the second one is evidential. Evidence. As the name says, undergirds faith. So this one, you try to show the evidence. So the nuance here is classical is argumentative. It's based on an argument or an, um, an, a, a logical syllogism or some sort of this, this equals this, right? Evidence is here's some facts. And man, we've got a ton of it. We've got a, so much evidence. And we can touch on some of this evidence. I'll bring some of it out in our fourth time together, how we can use evidence. I'm not saying we don't want evidence. But what I'm saying is, again, you cannot start with evidence 
because it will never address the underlying foundation. And we'll see that here in two weeks. Because when we start looking at worldview, it doesn't matter what facts I give somebody. They're going to believe what they're going to believe based on their worldview. And unless we address the underlying problem with their worldview, their facts are going to, they're going to see what they want to see. They've already got on the plane to Chicago. We can't get them to change, we can't get the plane to change directions. We've got to get them on a different plane. Okay? Uh, we can't, it doesn't work that way. So, some of the things we see, resurrection argument, which there's some, oh man, some of the, <laughs> Jesus being a historical figure and his resurrection and death on the cross is one of the best attested ancient things, right? There's actually more evidence that Jesus died on the cross and rose again than there is for one of the Caesars, okay? I mean, it, it's amazing. We have like seven sources on a Caesar that there's not a, seven sources on a Caesar, that's a hard thing to say. Um, you know, you have like all this, and it's in every history book, and no one goes, well, we don't know if uh, Caesar actually existed, all right? And then not even counting the Bible, which we should because it's a history book, okay? We discount the Bible. We've got ten sources on Jesus. We've got more than that Caesar, all right? So we've got lots of evidence, but that's not going to convince anybody because you're going to be like, eh, well, you believe that. I got my own belief, all right? So some of the people that believe this, D.B. Warfield, John Work, Montgomery, Gary Habermas, maybe throw a little C.S. Lewis in there on some things, but C.S. Lewis kind of bridged the gap on all three of these. And then the last one is presuppositional. Another term for this one is covenantal. You'll see those two both thrown around, but presupposition is the one I like because it really tells us we've got to get at the heart of what they believe, where it comes from, okay? So defend the faith by appealing to Scripture first, and we'll talk about how that's not circular, um, we have what's called a transcendental argument, which I'm going to explain that at length, okay? It's a full package deal. We've got to address the worldview before we can address any evidences, because our worldview colors what we see. It's the lenses by which we see the world, okay? So, again, all of these tools have strengths and are done by well-meaning Christians. Their arguments can be utilized, but presuppositionalism is the one that I believe is the most biblical starting point. Okay, remember, the people behind these are not enemies, okay? I'm not saying, you know, go burn these books or don't go, you know, to these websites. Whatever. They're great. I think they're awesome, and we can use those, and I'll show you how to. What we got to understand is those facts and evidences aren't going to convince anybody. And our goal here is to convince, to point them to Christ, and we can't do that until their worldview submits to Christ. And we can't do that without addressing the worldview. All right. So, moving right along, let me get it up here. C.S. Lewis once said, and I, thought, I love this quote, it says, oh, you can't really see it now, I mean, I'll read it from mine, maybe I won't. It says, uh, want to read the first line for me, Dave? Okay, so the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dark. He is quite a kindly judge, which God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Who do you give evidence to in a courtroom? Now, you're all going to say jury, but before the jury can ever see it, who has to approve it? The judge. Okay? The judge has to approve the argument of the lawyer. No, no, that's off. You can't say that. You know, jury, forget what he just said, right? Okay? 
That is what we do when we take arguments and evidences and we lay them before a non-believer. Okay? I come to John here and I go, here's some evidence. You decide, is there, is there a God? Go. Who's ultimately the judge? John. That's not going to change a heart. Because what have I just done? I've said, John, you're actually in charge. You're the judge. You decide whether there's enough evidence to believe in the judge of the universe. See what I've done there? I've fed his sin. I've fed the thing that he has a problem with. I am telling him, you're God. That's the problem, right? The problem is everybody has a God problem. There's one God, and they think they're it. Right? And if it's another religion, they think something else is God that they're willing to bow down to and do things because they have to earn it to go to heaven or to go to whatever spiritual whatever. So ultimately, when we come to apologetics, we don't want to feed the beast that is the sin nature of the person. We want to instead attack the world view because ultimately, that's what's going to change things. All right, here we go. Back to 1 Peter 3.15. Now, I kind of played a little trick on you guys here. I didn't read all of 1 Peter when I started because this is how it's most of the time read. Okay? Always being prepared to make a defense. And that's what I read to you guys at the very beginning. But I left something off. Did you guys catch it? This is the very first line. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, what Peter's doing here is he's telling us what our foundation has to be, what our arguing point has to be. He says, before you do anything else, before you give the defense for the reason for the hope with gentleness and respect, first and foremost, Christ. Honor Christ. Give Christ your priority. Start with Him. But then people will say, wait a second. You're trying to prove Jesus exists. You're trying to prove Scripture, but you just assumed what you tried to prove. Yes, it's called an axiom, which means it's the ultimate thing that I put my faith in. Every single person has one. A non-believer has a starting point. They are their starting point. They're going to argue from themselves, by their own selves, that their selves is the thing that runs themselves. See the point? We are going to start from, I'm going to start with Jesus and I'm going to argue that Jesus is the way to make sense of things, and we're going to put the two worldviews out, and we'll say, which one actually does what it's supposed to do? And the answer is Jesus, not you. So it's a very basic thing here, okay? All right, as we continue, let me go on a little excursions here, because I want to, uh, this is maybe my little mini-sermon mini in the middle of this, Okay? To quote another quote from C.S. Lewis, Christianity is, fal is false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. So the question is, does the Bible really inform our beliefs? We have all sorts of Bible verses. They're on coffee mugs. They're on shirts. They are verses we quote on a regular basis. We'll say amen to, and things like that. Things like Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom, knowledge, right? The fool despises wisdom and instruction. Sounds good on a coffee mug, right? That's a good class verse. That's a good life verse. But do we really believe that? What does it say? The fear of the Lord is the starting place of all knowledge, right? John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Christ is the truth. 
We believe that, but then we go, oh, wait, but I, I got to do this, or I got to do that with this argument, or I got to set the Bible aside for a minute. You just set aside the truth. You put it aside. But then argue for it. You see the problem? Colossians 2, 3 through 8. Now, this one, this one just kills me because this is not how we live. In whom, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How many? All. That's every single one. Knowledge comes from Christ. He is God. God is the one who is the truth, the knowledge. And yet we go, oh, i got to go over here and do this knowledge. But I, And unfortunately, many of you, I don't, I'm not going to presume that all of you have been only to secular schooling, but that's how our, our schools are taught, right? God's not even thought about, except for maybe to swear and to tell people to stop talking to Him, right? But really, God's just an afterthought. God's left out. And that's kind of the method we do with a lot of stuff. And I'm just as bad at that. I'm sitting over here trying to get ready to, 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 to teach after three songs. Thank you for doing more than three, by the way. Appreciate it. Okay? After three songs, and I'm going, okay, i gotta do, I got to do this. And I'm like, whoa, no, this is not about me. This is about the Lord. And that's what we do. Our gut response is, I can do this, and then when I get stuck, I go to the Lord. But that's not what these verses are saying. The verses are saying all knowledge. We have a fount of knowledge that we go to to sip at instead of go to and just fire hose it right in my face. Go. And that's unfortunately what we do. And I, I'm just as bad as that as the next person. Paul sees this. He says that throughout Colossians. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say, testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. Walk no longer. They are darkened. They are alienated. And yet, that's what we go back to, right? We have God over here, and we go to Him for salvation, and then we go over here for everything. And then every once in a while, we go back, and then we come over here, and we do our, oh, something bad happened, or someone's got cancer, and I go over. And I'm not belittling that at all, because you know what? The Lord's in charge of that cancer. The Lord's in charge of every part. But the thing is, we go to Him for the big issues, but we won't bother Him with the small? God, help us. If He's the Lord of everything, He's the Lord of everything. Okay? D.L. Moody once said, if you don't trust the Lord, um, and I'm going to mess this quote up. My wife would be laughing right now because I always mess the quotes up. If you don't trust Him with all, you don't trust Him at all. If you don't trust Him with all, and you don't trust Him at all. Look at the songs that we sang tonight. You look at those words. He's our only, not one of many, He's our only place in the storm. He's our only place. Gosh, I want to live that better. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have what? The mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Again, we have that tapped into it. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what is this? This is what we call our ultimate authority. Where do we let the buck stop? Where is our foundation found at? It must be found in God's Word. Otherwise, everything we do is out of whack. Everything we do is off the foundation. And this is what we do. We, we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, you are the foundation. Oh, I need you for salvation. I need you. I'm in this moment. 
and we say, great foundation, Lord, I'm going to go build something over here. And we walk off the foundation. And we can't do that. We can't allow that to happen. And it happens in everything. It just so happens that tonight I'm talking about apologetics, which brings it right back to us. So, if this, if something that God tells me to do doesn't make sense, would I still do it? Because your ultimate authority is your rationale for doing what you do. Am I willing to do it even though it doesn't make sense? Matthew Vines was a young man, became famous a few years ago. Uh, he went on uh, YouTube and he did a speech that he did for some student group where he said being a Christian and being gay was okay. It was the same thing. Came out with a book and he went on and did all the tours and all that. And um, He writes in his book, he says, as he was struggling with his sexuality and his identity, he says, his reason for losing confidence in the Bible's view on same-sex marriage is as simple, says, it no longer made any sense to me. But as I became more aware of sexual, same-sex relationships, I couldn't understand why they were supposed to be sinful or why the Bible would condemn them. So I don't believe they do. Now, it was right there. Did you guys catch it? He says, the reason the Bible doesn't say what I don't want it to say is because I don't want it to say that. Then he goes in the rest of his book and he finds some scholars kind of out on the fringes and pulls them together and puts out some worn arguments that, aren't, that don't hold weight. But his starting place is... Matthew Vines knows what Matthew Vines wants. Therefore, he boarded the plane. It's like going, I got on this plane to Chicago and I arrived in Chicago. That was amazing. He got on the plane because he said, I am the one who decided what the Bible is. The Bible is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. He was treating it as such. The ultimate authority. But think about some of the things in the Bible, right? You guys ever do this? You think about some of the things that people were asked to do in the Bible? Boom. I just put a couple together just off the top of my head. Blood on door frames. All right, so here's the deal. We're going to kill a lamb. It's got to be a perfect lamb. You're going to take the blood, and you're going to go, how's that going to match the shrimp? I mean, right? Did you ever think about how crazy that must have sounded? Yeah, what did Moses eat last night? Ooh, some crazy dreams, right? Or how about this? Let's march around this humongous city a few times, and then scream, and the walls fall down. You must have had like a, some super soprano that hit that right note, right? Or how about this one? Put all your troops away. I only need 300 and some clay pots and some, some torches, right? Or how about this one? Circumcision. Oh, yeah, great idea. Scissors down there. No, right? Okay. You guys weren't expecting that, were you? Okay. But think about it. If God tells you to do something... Do you say, I'm going to do it, or do you say, let me consult the, mo the, most recent, um, the most recent research, okay? Well, we do this, right? A study comes out, two parents is best for kids, and we go, see, Bible said that first, right? And we get all excited, but what happens when the next study comes out and it says, actually, three parents is better? Oh, right? And see, this is where we lose the battle. We've lost the battle on many different fronts because as Christians, we go and we say, okay, we believe this is not okay. But we're not going to use the Bible to argue from it. Why? Because the world won't agree with the Bible. So what? It's our Bible. It's our foundation. So we throw it away to then argue? 
we're going to lose every single one of those debates because they're going to find scholarship that says, you know what, doesn't matter what kind of relationship it is. It doesn't matter whether it's two guys or two girls or five guys or one girl, whatever it is. God help that girl, okay, right? It doesn't matter. You can find a study. And so we have to base it on God's Word, even if we don't get it. So are you willing to submit? Are we willing to submit to God's Word? That's the ultimate part. Okay, there's the end of the little mini-sermon. Let's move on. All right, now let's talk about neutrality. I've hinted at this a little bit. Most people believe that what we do is we go and we say, let's go to a neutral ground and we'll kind of discuss it and then you can make up your mind, right? I'm going to argue that there is no neutral ground, okay? There's no neutral starting place. All facts are interpreted by a person's worldview. Starting from where anywhere other than Scripture is to board the wrong plane to fight without a word. And this next part, I didn't know it was for you, Matt, but I'm going to put it up there for you anyways. You get it? All right, okay. All right, that's Switzerland's flag. They're always neutral. It's a cross out. Okay, all right. History nerds unite. All right, so here we go. What we do is we say, let's lay aside the Bible and then we'll talk, right? So let's say someone comes up and says, well, oh, man, Okay, we need to talk about abortion. Okay, all right, let's talk about abortion. Let's do it. Okay, I need a reason why abortion's not okay. And I go, okay, well, in Psalms, no, 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 no. Don't, don't say Psalms. I need a reason outside the Bible. Cody Bauckham says, the next words that come out of my mouth is, well, then why don't you just quit? How dare you, Vody? You hate kids? No, you're just trying to find the fastest way to surrender when you say, Give me a reason outside of the Bible to make sense of the Bible, to argue for the Bible. Because essentially what you're doing is you're saying, my non-Christian friend thinks the Bible is irrelevant. And you go, okay, I'll set this aside and argue from somewhere else. What have I just shown? The Bible's irrelevant. I've just entered their territory. You lose. I like it, this analogy. I stole this, but I'm going to do it anyways. So imagine medieval times, right? And you're a knight, and you come up, and you pull out your sword, right? And you're standing there across from another knight, and the knight across from you goes, I deny thine sword. And you go, okay. Put the sword back in, right? What happens next? You lose, right? Now you have two options here. You have your sword, and you go, oh, I, I see it in my hand. I've killed other knights with it. And I can do one of two things. I can put the sword away and I can say, all right, there's this thing called metallurgy where you take metal and you make it really thick by folding it and then you sharpen it and then you stick the pointy in in the person that you want to hurt. Right? That's one way to convince the person. Is it going to work? Probably not. What's the other way to convince the knight? Cut him. Right? He's going to believe one way or another. That sword's coming at him. Okay? And see, what we do is, as Christians, we think we have the sword of the Spirit, and we go, oh, you, you don't believe this exists? Okay, let's just set it right over here and come over here. Now let's talk. They've just disarmed us. We have now entered their worldview, because their worldview is what? There is no God. We just said, let's talk about this as if there's no God. Whose, plan, whose, whose worldview are we on? Theirs. We have now entered their worldview. Okay? And see, their worldview is not based on 
anything other than the axiom that is, I am my own God. I am the one who decides. I am autonomous. And when we enter their worldview and we step onto their foundation, we end up on their foundation. There's nowhere else to go. We just have to surrender. So ultimately, this quote kind of sums it up for me. Christian believers must not walk, must not behave or live in a way that imitates the behavior of those who are unredeemed. Specifically, Paul forbids the Christian from imitating the unbeliever's vanity of mind. Christians must refuse to think or reason according to a worldly mindset or outlook. The culpable agnosticism of the world's intellectuals must not be reproduced in Christians as alleged neutrality. This outlook, this approach to truth, this intellectual method evidences a darkened understanding and a hardened heart. It refuses to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, including scholarship and the world of thought. So we've compromised. We've compromised. There's no way to reach someone when we compromise our starting point. Okay? No man is able to serve two masters. It should come as no surprise that in a world where all things have been created by Christ and are carried along by a word of his power, where all knowledge is therefore deposited into him who is the truth, and who was to be Lord over all thinking, neutrality is nothing short of immorality. We have decided we know best. We're going to go and do it the way the world wants us to do it. Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. Now, I am not saying that a non-Christian cannot think logical thoughts. I'm not saying that a non-Christian is an enemy and we need to stick him with the sword. Literally, I am talking figuratively with God's word. The sword pierces, and then the sword does the work. But if we give up our starting place, we cannot, cannot have any kind of a discussion at all. So we cannot lay aside our worldview. Now let's turn to Romans 1. This is going to be our last passage we're going to look at. Let me read it to you, and then we'll get going. This is going to explain my last point here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or, as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women's exchange natural relations with those who are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God and gave them up to a debased mind so that they ought not to, to do what they ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Yikes. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Whew. That's heavy. 
I always went to that verse because when kids would ask me, well, what about the person living in Outer Mongolia who's never heard the Gospel? I'd say, oh, well, see, everybody knows. Everybody knows. It's written on nations. See, what I didn't notice was that everybody knows. Everybody knows there's a God. Every single person knows there's a God. There's no such thing as an atheist. Why? The Bible says so. And the Bible's my foundation. The Bible says every single person has a knowledge of God and needs to suppress it. So look at the progression here. Men know God. They do not honor God. Do they know? First thing they do is they all know Him. They don't honor Him. They just go, I'm going to do my own thing. They become fools. Now this is not fool like how we use it. It just means, it means their mind is messed up. It means that they have, their up is down, left is right, in is out. It's backwards. Doesn't mean they can't do good math. It doesn't mean they can't create amazing things. It means when it comes to what's most important, they can't see the right, right way. They exchange the glory of God for idols. See that a little bit in our culture? See that in our world? Yeah. They indulge in their lust, usually for their idols. They shatter the image that they bear. Wow, we are seeing that like crazy right now. God didn't make me this way. I'm supposed to be that way. Okay? It's huge. And they lose their mind. They cannot rationally make sense of it. They say, we are rational, reasoning, logical beings, except for when it comes to my idol. Then you don't touch it. You can't come anywhere near it. Leave it alone. So, the next point I want to get to is there is no such thing as an atheist. The Bible does not acknowledge the word atheist. As a matter of fact, the word atheist didn't even exist until a couple hundred years ago. That doesn't mean there weren't people that said they didn't believe in a God. But what does Romans 1 say? Everyone knows there's a God. That's a touch point. See, the, pre- the reason why we try to do the neutrality thing is we try to have common ground to interact with a non-believer, right? You can't, you can't do a Bible study with a non-believer, right? So we go, oh, well, we'll go in the middle. No, you can't do that. But the Bible says they believe, they know. There's no such thing as a, a non-believer. They know that there's a God. They just choose to not accept it. Aldous Huxley once famously said, he said, um, the reason why most atheists are atheists is they don't want to give up the sin that they, or the, the thing that they love more than their God. So that's why I'm an atheist. I want to go have lots of sex, is what he said. And if you think about that, that's our world. They don't want to give up their fill in the blank. There's no such thing as an atheist. Okay? Next one we see is, is, here we go. Second, there is no such thing as not enough evidence for God. Bertrand Russell, a very famous arch-atheist, wrote, um, if he ever had to stand before God and God asked him, why, don't, why didn't you believe in me? Russell would reply, because you didn't give me enough evidence, God. Right? <laughs> he, he knows there's a God for sure now, because he's dead. All right? The Bible does not say that. The Bible says everybody has enough evidence. And that, do you notice what Paul did not include in that list of evidences? The Bible, right? He says, just nature itself is enough to talk about all of these characteristics of God. And then we have the Bible, and then we have these people that are called Christians that come around and tell you about the Bible through their lives and through their suffering. There's no excuse. And then lastly, atheists live in a dream world. This is a huge one. 
Because what this world wants to do, they do it in this school, they do it in our entertainment, they do it in our music, they do it in our newscasting, is it's mutual assurance that the world that they've created is real. Yeah, there's no God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. They, they live in a dream world, and they're constantly trying to help each other remember it's a dream world, help them see it. Either we bow the knee to Christ and affirm the truth of what God says, or we oppose Him and thus attempt to create a world of our own making. No matter what kind of opposition there is to Christianity, before we even know the details of what they're going to say, we know they cannot make sense of the real world. What a huge advantage we have. No matter what a person asks you about Christianity, no matter what religion, random smorgasbord religion argument that they come up with, they lay it out before you. We already know the end of the story. We know that they don't have a leg to stand on. And we're going to see that as we get through this entire series. And I know this one is going long. This is my longest of the four, okay? They don't have a leg to stand on. Because ultimately, they're in a dream world trying to make sense of it, and we know. This next phrase that we saw, who by their righteousness suppress the truth. That word suppress means to hold down. Now, I know it's summer and it's hot, right? Anybody been to the pool lately? Anybody been in a pool lately? Right? Okay. You ever played the game where you take a ball and you put it under the water? Right? What happens when you let go of it, Thomas? right up in the air, right? And hopefully splashes your sister, right? Okay? Now, what do you have to do to hold that down? You have to work really hard, right? You have to really work, and you're using all those stabilizer muscles that you'll feel the next day if you're old, you know, just pushing down on it, right? You have to constantly hold it down. Well, that word in the Greek means to suppress, hold down. It's like holding a volleyball, like holding a polo ball under the water. So this is an important touch point with the non-believer, right? He knows God, okay, knows it. He knows that he is having to do something to get rid of him. So what does he do? He pushes it down. He's contacting God. Because as soon as he lets go of that ball, God shows up. He's trying to hold God down and keep him under the water. He knows it. And he's having to work super hard at it to hold that ball down. Is it any wonder that in our society, especially here in America, we have hundreds and hundreds of ways to chemically take your mind off of whatever you're dealing with? Why do you think that is? Because there's this cognitive dissonance that they have where they know, they have a conscience that may not be talking much, that they are pushing down the God of the universe and trying to ignore that he's there. And they've surrounded themselves with yes-men who tell them that there is no God. And they read books about it and they watch shows that all seem to say there's no God just so they can feel good about having to hold that down. It's exhausting. And that's the society we're living in. They're working so hard to hold down that there is a God. This is what Greg Bonson, this is where I got this analogy from. A man who holds a basketball underwater may deny that he knows exerting its pressure on him. He both possesses the basketball, get that? He's holding the basketball, and he's denying it's there. What basketball? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're doing. What? <laughs> I just like my arms down here like this. I'm not actually holding the ball down. What are you talking about? That's the atheist, right? He's holding the ball down and denying that it's there. 
Yet if he would cease from hindering it, the truth which he possessed all along would surface. It would explode. So this is our touch point. Cannot ex- we cannot let this go. Uh, let's go back one for just a second. I don't want to get to that yet. Okay? We let them live in this dream world. So tonight, really what we've talked about is we've talked about our foundations. We've talked about the fact that we cannot enter a neutral area with these non-believers. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you a really quick one-slide summary of the entire apologetics, okay? Because this is just step one, all right? Hopefully it's wet your appetite enough that you're going to go, I want to know what the next step is because this would be interesting. So here's the first step we did, which is, okay, whoops, got to go on the right button. The first step is that there is no neutrality. And the second step, come on. thing we do is we must know what we believe and know it well. So we start with, we got to know God's Word. we got to know our foundation. That's it. First thing. Second thing we do, we must not compromise our starting place because there's no neutrality. Everyone has a worldview. Next time we get together, we're going to talk about what, what a worldview is, how to make sense of it. Because here's the deal. The first thing we got to do after we go, okay, I know God's Word. I know it really well. I don't enter into their worldview. There's no neutrality. The very next thing we do is we enter into their worldview. Now, wait a second. That's a contradiction. It is, but it isn't. I'm not giving up my Christianity, but what I'm going to do is I'm saying, my Christianity, I'm going to bring right over into your worldview, and I'm going to say, does your worldview make sense of this? Oh, it doesn't. Well, mine does. Look over here. Does it make sense of this? Oh, yours doesn't, but mine does. Not in a, you know pejorative, put them, put them down manner, but to say, your worldview does not make sense with reality, because it's a dream world. So we enter into their worldview to walk through the problems with it, and then we take them to our worldview, and we show them the truth. So we must enter their worldview, not only to show them how it is inconsistent and unlivable, but ultimately, it is illogical, it's inconsistent, and really, they're very hypocritical, because here's the thing we're going to see. We're going to see that most non-Christians live the Christian worldview. And you're like, wait a second, they don't. They're sleeping with their girlfriend. They're, they're, there's murderers out there. There's th-. No, what I'm saying is, based upon the non-Christian way that the world came about, that we are evolved sludge with no meaning, no anything, no right and wrong, There is no way for me to say that anything anybody ever has done is wrong or right. There's no way for me to judge anyone. There's no way for anything civilized to come about. And yet, the non-believer standing here will say, well, that's not fair. That's not just. That's not right. Where did that come from? Christian worldview. That's the foundation. And so what you've got is you've got people that are standing on the Christian worldview of there's a right, there's a wrong, that we have value. We go to funerals, right? We don't go to funerals for little mitochondria who die, right? We don't go to funerals for a seagull that dies, but we go to funerals for each other. But we're just animals. So we're living in the Christian worldview. We're acting out the Christian worldview, but claiming we're on the other. 
That's where the world is. And when we see that, we can start going and saying, your worldview is not what you're doing. You're hypocritical. Okay, well, fine. I'll be in my worldview. You can't live it. You can't live it. Why? Because it's false. It's a dream world. Wake up. So ultimately, that is our goal. So the last quote I want to show you guys. found this. This is from William Edgar. He writes, This is not a ten-step method or a lockstep procedure leading people from unbelief to faith. The covenantal or the presuppositional approach is more of a wisdom than a scheme. It requires spending time with your interlocutor and not the elevator speech. Peter tells us to commend the hope we have, but with gentleness and respect, not aiming first at winning an argument, but first lifting Christ up. Last, it is crucial to realize that only with Holy Spirit's work of inner persuasion will my arguments achieve the desired goal. Of course, this is... That is not our call. Jesus invited the rich young ruler to sell his possessions and follow him. He used the presuppositional apologetics and exposed the deepest aspirations. And at that point, he didn't win the argument, but he honored the Father. And that's ultimately our goal. So on the last page of your notes there, that is the entirety of the, the layout of this apologetic method. It's not in any kind of chronological order. It's got some kind of preview stuff, so if you want to look through there and go, ooh, what does this mean? I have questions. You want to start working through that? Um, that's for you to take with you. Um, in the back where the mugs are is a chapter from this book. That's it. Now he's out there. Oh, he left. Never mind. Um, this book, which is a kind of an introductory version to presuppositional apologetics. It's very basic, and I love it because of that, because this is a very heady, very weighty issue. Um, I have photocopied the last chapter of this book for you, and it's a parable. And it's kind of cheesy. There's like, you know, Dennis No God. That's his last name is No God, right, N-O. And then there's like Christian Christianity or something. They're, they're kind of funny, but they go through a apologetic interaction with a bunch of different people, and it kind of just shows how to do this back and forth where you go, well, here, your worldview doesn't quite make sense, but mine does. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer those to you guys. You can take them with you. You can take all of those little note card thingies that you want. Um, those are for you to, to look at, to ponder. And then what we'll do next time in two weeks is we'll start off and I'll answer any questions. And I can actually sit around and answer questions here at the end, too, if you're interested. Uh, actually, does anyone have any questions before we go? Because sometimes questions can benefit everybody. Anything I need to clear up? The name of the book is called Every Thought Captive. Okay? And if you take the packet at the top, it has the, chat, the name of the book, and it has the author's little bio on the back page. Okay? Um, so we'll do question and answer and kind of do a little review at the beginning, and then we'll get right into worldview, and then I'll restate the apologetic again with a different way of saying it, maybe even using an example, show a video clip or something like that, and then uh, we'll continue on. So that is all I have for you guys tonight. Let me pray for you, and then Matt, I think you're coming up here, right? Okay. Lord Jesus, thank you.